Good morning. This is lesson 23 in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And so I say, so many titles, just one sermon. My vanilla title that didn't last long, The Cleansing of the Temple and the Cursing of the Fig Tree. Anybody could do that. My second title, Tree Huggers and the Dark Side of Jesus. Now, I could have said fig tree huggers, but I think you uh, you get at least the general picture there. And the last one, Jesus and the original Occupy Jerusalem movement. <laughs> There's lots of application for us there, and it indeed was was that. All right, and i got to get this off my chest, so let, let me just do it now. So much whining, just one tree. I am absolutely befuddled at, at, at the whining of commentaries and commentators regarding the cursing of the fig tree. I just can't believe it. Listen to this, William Barclay. To take it as literal history presents difficulties which are well nigh insuperable. To be frank, the whole incident does not seem worthy of Jesus. Get a grip on it, man. R.T. France, R.T. France, well-known, well-respected scholar, says this. It is hard to imagine why Jesus should have misused his miraculous power in this petty way and still harder to understand why anyone should record it. Oh, my back. What in the world is with these guys? Whiners. Well, we'll take care of them in just a second. Setting the whining aside, the solution these guys have is it's just an acted out parable. Jesus isn't really uh, angry at the fig tree. He doesn't really curse it. It's just sort of an acted out thing as though somehow this can do it. Look, folks, it says he was hungry. He saw a fig tree in leaf and that was the promise of figs. He went there and didn't find it and he cursed it. It's not an acted out parable, is it? I mean, it may have parabolic implications, but it's just a story about what happened. Mark alone gives us this additional point. It wasn't the season for figs. You think Jesus didn't know that? Of course he did. The three was, so to speak, a hypocrite. It promised and gave evidence of things which were not there. And we know how Jesus feels about hypocrisy, don't we? Matthew chapter 6, long prayers and, and, and fasting and all this stuff that looks good on the outside. You know, Matthew 23 is even worse. Jesus hates hypocrisy, even hypocritical trees. Notice too, the disciples didn't agonize. The disciples didn't say, Jesus, aren't you being a little hard on that tree? Nobody, Nobody's breaking out in a sweat about this thing, except the commentators. Disciples, they're amazed, not agonized. They're amazed at what they see. Jesus speaks of this and applies what he has done in a positive way. He does not make excuses for what he's done. He makes application for everybody from what he's done. That seems to me to speak volumes to us. 
Well, there are a few texts of Scripture that the whiners might look at, too. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, is the story of Israel as the vineyard. The vineyard which God planted, the vineyard is obviously Israel in the text. He gives it all of his care, all of the watering, all of the finest and and the uh, soil and whatever, and the reality is no fruit. So what does he do? Well, he uproots and destroys the vineyard. Sounds kind of familiar to me. Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Luke doesn't have the cursing of the fig tree, but he does have this parable of fig tree. Isn't it interesting that in the parable, the fig tree is given three years to produce the same amount of time that Jesus has spent on earth with his people. Three years to produce, and when it doesn't produce, the Lord says to the keeper, After three years, cut it down. Okay, then you've got the text, which I didn't put in your notes, in Isaiah 45, 9, Jeremiah 18. um, Those texts, Romans chapter 9, which are the potter and the clay texts. Remember when in Romans 9, people are saying, why would God, why would God, you know, condemn one and and, and save another? And... and (laughs) Paul nicely says, oh, shut up. What are you doing talking to God like this? Uh, and, 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 and he says, does not the potter have the right to do what he wants with clay? I mean, folks, we're worried about clay, in effect, being wadded up and thrown away. So what? He's the potter. But I, I know this is the most compelling one of all, so I'll tell you about my grandfather's egg book. My grandparents, my grandmother was born in the late 1800s. You know, she died at 106 not long ago. Her husband uh, and she raised chickens, especially during the Depression. And one of the things that surfaced at my grandmother's funeral was my grandfather's egg book. Now, I wish I had it here. It's a family heirloom, and I I didn't fall heir to it. But, But I saw it, held it in my hands, And this egg book went something like this, you know, June 15th, a chicken A, one egg, chicken B, one egg, chicken C, no egg, and on down the line. June 16th, chicken C, no egg. June 17th, chicken C, no egg. June 18th, chicken stew. (laughs) No, I'm telling you the truth. Now, was my grandfather some kind of a horrible man because he decided that an unproductive chicken should be put in the stew rather than fed without some produce coming out of it? Good grief, folks. I just don't see why we've got so much trouble with this. And I say, because of the title I had, The Dark Side of Jesus, I, I think I would have to say, I don't think people like the dark side of Jesus. They love Jesus in the manger. And they love gentle Jesus who doesn't condemn and whatever and who is meek and mild. And he is that. But when you look at the Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, people are falling down before him like dead men. He's the one who's coming again and he's going to clean house. The cleansing of the temple is a little microcosm of what's going to happen at the second coming. Folks, that Jesus 
has, from our perspective, that dark side of being one who judges. And you better get used to losing a fig tree now and then compared to what's going to happen when he comes as the judge. The dark side of Jesus. Okay, let's get a little backdrop. If you'll take a look at my, my the pictures. This came out of the ESV study Bible. Not bad. Uh, and you'll see that picture. Now shoot to the next one and look. I know my fabulous artwork. I cannot make that mouse draw a straight line to save my neck. You don't know how many times I tried. But if you look at the inner uh, uh, building there, that's the the mount the the, the whole mountain uh, complex. That's the temple. The red that I've circled there is actually the court of women. The yellow is the is the perimeter of the temple uh, grounds that is the court of the Gentiles. Strangely, the, the court of the Jews is not really very visible from this particular shot. <clears throat> and the and the blue that I've marked there is the portico of Solomon, and I take it that that would be where the church would have gathered, and I, I take it as well, that's probably where Jesus would have gathered to do his teaching and his miracles. And, and here's one reason why. Jews and Gentiles could be there. And that's a critical thing. If you if you're meeting in some part of the temple where Gentiles are excluded, then obviously you've denied an essential part of of the gospel. So anyway, that's that's one look. Now look at that blue line because the next picture is going to be a shot that's that's looking in from that. Uh, Thirteen and eleven are looking in, so it's actually a side shot from what we saw in the past. But there you see. The court of women, number nine, and, and they have number 12 as the uh, court of the Gentiles. But that's really the perimeter, as it were. And, and my point is this. Uh, it, you have to look at what's taking place sort of like what happens at the airport. Okay? doesn't matter whether it's DFW or, 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 or Love Field or whether it's any other airport around the world. You have to go down hallways to get the airplanes, Right? And what do they do in those hallways? They sell you Starbucks coffee. They sell books. You know, they got everything in the world there. And everybody has to pass by, do they not? They have to pass. It's a captive audience, folks. They got to walk right by. They got to smell the donuts or the coffee or whatever it is. And so they kind of reel them in. I'm not saying that's crooked. but I will say this. They pay a premium price to park there. Do they not? That's business. All right, just overlay that on the temple. And you understand that in order to get into the temple, you had to go through the court, right, of the Gentiles. And and so some brilliant uh, businessman, and some have alleged it's probably the, the high priest, because he would be the guy who sort of has the franchise there. He starts selling spots all along the way to get into the temple. Here's a place to buy your sheep. Here's a place, you know, to do this, change your money. Only the problem was they were a bunch of crooks. So what ha- what ends up is you have this whole marketplace where now the place where Gentiles would come to worship and to pray is occupied by cattle and 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 you're like a shopping mall in there, and that's not a place for worship or prayer. That's the problem that lies behind uh, what we see in our text. 
Okay, so let's look at some texts which now set the scene uh, for us in terms of the cleansing of the temple. When you look at 1 Kings chapter 8, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, you find the, the dedication of the temple. By the way, if you were to look up the word prayer in your concordance, you would find prayer in the Old Testament to be most often mentioned in the book of Psalms. No surprise, right? Second and third instances are the dedication of the temple. The most dense use of prayer is there in those chapters and those books that have to do with the dedication of the temple. When you read through, and I would encourage you to do it, when you read through Solomon's prayer, you will see that the purpose of the temple, the primary purpose that is in the focus of Solomon is prayer. And so he will say, when your people come to this place and pray in, in, in a repentant and broken heart, hear your people. When your people are out in battle and their enemy is defeating uh, them and they turn toward the temple and pray and ask for your help, hear your people. When foreigners who live in a distant place when they come to the point where they want to repent and trust in you and they turn toward that temple and pray, hear their prayer and answer it. You cannot read those dedication texts without coming away saying the purpose of the temple is to promote prayer. Now that may begin to give us a clue then as to why Jesus is so upset as he comes into the temple. Those texts that I mentioned, Jeremiah chapter uh, 7, verses 1 through 16, he's saying there to the Israelites, you keep saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple at that moment in time was like a magic uh, element. It was sort of like the brazen serpent that they began to, to lift up and worship as an object of worship. They believed that if the temple was there, God was duty-bound to protect them. And so they began to put their trust in the temple, not in God. By the way, that's also why Jesus and Stephen were accused of speaking ill of the temple. And the, and the, and the Jew religious unbelievers were saying, hey, die for that. That's a horrible offense, speaking against the temple. Uh, and he says in Jeremiah, it is a place, a den of robbers. And then he says in that Jeremiah text, I'm going to destroy that temple. And you know what the next thing is that he says to Jeremiah? Stop praying. Stop praying for this people. It's too late. Isn't it interesting? The place that promotes prayer is destroyed. And prayer for Israel's deliverance now ends because time's up. They've been called on to repent. They've rejected. Judgment is nigh. In Isaiah 56, you have this uh, reference to foreigners and those who would consider themselves sort of exempt from the normal flow of worship. And, and it says uh, to foreigners, listen, don't say to yourself, I'm a foreigner. What do I have to do with God? Because my temple is going to be a place for you where you can come and you can worship me. The temple was not for Jews only. It was for Jews and Gentiles. So the bottom line to all this is the temple was a place to promote and facilitate prayer. 
You can imagine, therefore, when Jesus comes into the uh, the temple and in those places where Gentiles could were supposed to gather for prayer, you had this this shopping mall, and, and you had to, you, you, there's no way you could work your way around the sheep and the goats, all the bleeding. Do you think that was an atmosphere for prayer? No way. And so it's not surprising that our Lord Jesus is very distressed. It was not a place for the Gentiles. The courtyard businesses were crooked. That's all you can say. It wasn't that these were legitimately going about the the business of changing money or selling sheep. This was a bunch of crooks, as it were. The Jewish mafia ran the place, and a great high priest was probably the don. And, and so it was, it was not a place where business was done right. So the franchise, if we're right, and it is external evidence, uh, may well have been that of the high priest. It does explain why they're so bent out of shape when Jesus throws them out, doesn't it? It's not only him cleaning the house, it's him putting an end, at least for a time, to their business. In the synoptic gospels, it's interesting that it's the people who are driven out, not the animals. Now, if you look at John's gospel in John chapter 2, Jesus ran out not only the, the, the sellers and the buyers, the money changers, he ran out the, the animals too. For whatever reason, that's not mentioned in this last event. And I think the reason is Jesus isn't angry with that sheep. He's not angry with the sheep. He's angry with the guy selling it. And he's angry with the guy buying it. And he's angry with the guy who's changing the money at an unfair rate. It's the people who go. Now, think about that, folks. Here's a shopping mall and a thriving business. And Jesus, with with one you know whip, drives the whole bunch out. That must have been something to watch, don't you think? Uh, in terms of the courage of our Lord, nobody seemed to be willing to resist or take him on. So this really was an occupied Jerusalem event. Think about it. Jesus dealt with the corruption. He didn't just whine about it. He dealt with the corruption. And what happened as a result of the occupying of Jerusalem, and, and in particular, the occupying of the temple? He set up shop, right? That means he taught... Matthew says he healed. So there were miracles going on. I cannot remember. I I meant to say, in a previous uh, message, I meant to say that miracles, there were no other miracles mentioned in Mark from the time of the cursing of the fig tree, but they are mentioned in Matthew. In the time that Jesus was there in the temple in that final week, he is doing miracles. And that's why the children continue to cry out and praise our Lord Jesus, even though the the religious leaders don't like it. So our Lord Jesus has occupied it. He's teaching. He's doing miracles. And he's also being divinely protected. Because the one thing that these religious leaders don't want to do is to rile the mob. And the reality is when Jesus gathers there in the temple and there's that many people gathered around, nobody's going to walk in there and haul Jesus off. Nobody. Because they know the crowds would riot. So Jesus is safe and the text then says at the end of the day, Jesus leaves the, the city and goes out to Bethany and stays out of harm's reach. The other thing this incident does 
is it solidifies in the hearts and minds of the religious leaders, we are going to kill Jesus. There is no question in their mind, but what they are going to do it. The question is how. So you can imagine when Judas comes along with his offer, they are dancing in the streets. Now they've had their opportunity, or so they think. Well, the story is a simple story. I'm not going to get into the chronological differences. In fact, I'm going to confess, this is a horrible thing. I know in some previous event, probably when I was studying my way through Matthew, I had the perfect solution to explain why Mark talks about the the, the cursing of the fig tree on one day and the finding it and the giving a lesson on it on the next day when Matthew makes it look like it's all one day. I had the solution. I can't remember it. That's what happens when you get old and senile. It's just gone. i got to come up with it all over again. So I'm not going to try and tell you I've got it figured out. I'm just going to say the the apparent discrepancy is there, folks. And all you got to do is just say, look, if I can't figure it out in this life, I get my hand up in heaven and we'll find out what it is. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree that appears to be bearing fruit, finds that it is fruitless, He curses the fig tree, and the next day, the disciples notice it's Peter. He says, hey, Jesus, hey, take a look at this tree. Notice that it says it was withered from the root. See that? From the roots? Have you ever watched plants die? They generally die the other way. They die, and, you know, you'll see a branch that gets kind of withery leaves and whatever, and it kind of dies down. This one died up. And somehow Mark felt that was noteworthy that, you know, this, (laughs) I think he was saying this, if I could transpose it a little bit. It was deader than a doornail. Uh, it, It had died really hard. Okay. So the disciples see this. They're amazed, not troubled. Amazed. Oh, gee, look at this, Jesus. This fig tree you cursed. There it is. Deader than a doornail. So Jesus turns this into a lesson on prayer. If you believe and don't doubt, you can do even greater things than this. You could say to this mountain, maybe the Mount of Olives, where they are looking at it, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. Dead sea, who knows? A lesson on prayer. Here's the thing that struck me. It struck me on the way to church, and that's why if you always see me writing different times, it's because I'm thinking of all the things I should have thought about sooner, and they occurred to me. Jesus is the temple. Is that not right? Destroy this temple, John 2, three days I'll raise it up. Jesus is the temple. The purpose of the temple is promoting prayer. Well, what do you know? Jesus, the temple, in this context, where the temple is not promoting prayer, uses the cursed fig tree as a lesson on... Isn't that something? The temple promotes prayer. Well, maybe that's something that pulls your chain. Maybe it isn't. But I, uh, I find it fascinating. Is this a proof text for the name it and claim it, folks? You know, anything that you believe, uh, that you ask for and you believe... Uh, you got it. Well, number one, the requirement is faith. Not blind optimism, not some other entity, but it's faith and it's faith 
in Christ. So I don't know of anybody out there who has yet uh, had the faith to say to any mountain, take a hike. It hasn't happened yet. The beauty of this is that the mountain and the sea are sort of the far end. So here's the way I look at it, rightly or wrongly. I look at this as Jesus curses a, a, a meager fig tree and the disciples are amazed by it. Wow, Jesus, look at that. Jesus says, you think that's impressive? A little old tree? You know, you could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. It would happen. So you got from this end to this end and who could upstage putting a mountain in the sea? I mean, that's sort of the far end. But the other side of it is, it's an illustration that is generic enough that nobody's out just saying, okay, what we got to do is pray for this mountain to move. That's just that's just an example that becomes general. So uh, there are all kinds of things we could be praying for that are, shall I call it, metaphorical mountains. And that, I think, is what our Lord Jesus is doing. This is one of many texts on prayer. In fact, it is this very text where Jesus is not only going to say unbelief is a hindrance to prayer, he's going to say unforgiveness is a hindrance to prayer. So just in this text alone, if I had all sufficient faith to to say to a mountain, be moved into the sea, and I really believe God could do it, but I had unforgiveness in my heart toward my brother, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. So even there, it's not an unconditional promise that just faith alone produces the thing you want. By the way, when Jesus talks about unforgiveness, I don't think he's whistling in the wind. <laughs> Remember James and John taking Jesus aside with Mama? Could we have first and che- second chair in heaven? The other disciples were steamed, were they not? I don't think it's accidental that Jesus says, oh, oh, by the way, you guys may have some issues among yourselves (laughs) that you need to work out because your prayer life is going to be just miserable that you found forgiveness. Well, anyway, I don't think it means, as some would say, this is name it and claim it, all you have to do is believe and you get it. But I do believe, my friend, it means more than most of you and I believe. You know, we can sit there and we can point our finger at the name it and claim it, folks, but the reality is, why do we not pray more? I'll tell you the answer from my heart. Because I don't think I'm going to get anything. If I really believe that God would do monumental things through prayer... Don't you think I'd be hitting my knees more often than I do? So I look at this text as a rebuke to me, not as a rebuke to the name and claim of boys. They've got their own problems. I'm talking about me. My issue is, do I trust in Christ enough to ask boldly for things that will bring glory to him? Our faith must be in Jesus. In fact, that text in Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Our faith must be in Jesus, and faith comes from the word concerning Christ. In other words, where does the faith come from? 
Well, it comes from God. And in particular, it comes from God through his word. So that when I read God's word and I see this is what God has purposed and promised to do. That's a pretty safe bet, isn't it? That I can pray and that that's going to happen. Your kingdom come. Does anybody doubt that his kingdom is coming? It's going to come. So all I need to do is read his word, find out what God has purposed to do, and pray for it. And then I think there will be great things. In John chapter 14, and and think about this now chronologically. I know it's not Mark. But Jesus is here moving toward the middle of the, of the, of, of that last week, right? It's in the midst of that week that Jesus will say this to the disciples from John 14, 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Is Jesus not saying, with just a little more clarity, is he not really saying the same thing he's telling the disciples here in Mark? If your trust is in me, and you are asking for those things that glorify the Father, then greater things than I have done, you will do. If you ask me in my name. Oh, one more thing. What Mark adds that Matthew does not is that condition of forgiveness. I'm not going to get off into why, where, where verse 26 went, but I, I'm willing to leave it parked right where it is. <laughs> But 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 that, that's another discussion uh, in and of itself. Let's just stay with verse 25 and say, unforgiveness is a barrier to prayer. Now, if you look at texts like first, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, if you're going to make an offering and you realize there's a problem between you and your brother, you leave your offering and you go get reconciled first. Somehow, unreconciled relationships are a problem in terms of our relationship with God. First Peter 3 says that husbands need to live with their wives in an understanding way so that their prayers will not be hindered. So those are simply bringing to, into focus the things which we are seeing in our text. Unbelief and unforgiveness are two of the major problems with our prayer life, I believe. Now, there are a number of metaphorical applications, uh, and that's certainly true. The fig tree is no doubt a picture of Israel. And and here you are at the temple. Remember, the disciples are looking across from the Mount of Olives, and they're saying, man, Jesus, that is such a beautiful place. Yeah, it looks so good, but it's going to go down so there's not one stone on the other. Somebody said this week, and I think it's right, it, it's a picture in a way because the point is the time wasn't right. That's what, that's what Mark is saying. It wasn't the time for figs. Regardless, regardless of what this blooming tree is saying, it isn't the time. 
Luke tells us it wasn't the time for Jesus to set up his kingdom either. That time was going to be later. So there's a sense in which when you look at that tree and you've got the leaves and whatever, it's like the tree is saying, it's time. (laughs) And the truth of it is, it's not. There's metaphorical uses. And you probably need to think about those. But this is an interesting one. When you deal with the loaves of bread in Mark 6 through 8, there the disciples are thinking literally and not metaphorically. It fascinates me when I listen to sermons on this text that most everybody is thinking metaphorically when Jesus is talking literally. Literally about prayer. So it seems to me the first place we ought to go is there, not metaphorical places. And again, that metaphorical message about Israel being destroyed and all of that, the temple going down, that's going to be evident as time passes. It's not evident to the disciples at this moment in time. What is evident is prayer is vitally important. So when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he tell his disciples to do? Pray. Not think about the metaphorical meaning of a fig tree. Pray that you not enter into temptation. Jeanette really helped me out in this. Since she's in the nursery, I can talk about her. I, I thought I was thinking very profound thoughts about connecting the dots. Here's what she said. As she was studying this text, she said, the thing that the temple and the fig tree have in common is that they both failed to produce that for which they were created. Isn't that that a nice way of saying it? I wish I'd have said that. Well, they didn't produce that for which they were created. Which leads me to say, what are we created for? See, some people seem to think that we're just created to to make uh, an arrangement with God to get our fire insurance in order, and that's the end of it. But when you look at texts like Mark chapter 4, where you see the various things, but it's only the fourth soil who bears fruit. It's obvious that's the desired end, isn't it? When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and you see all this immaturity. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And Paul says, I can't talk to you. You guys, you're still talking baby talk. You're immature. Hebrews chapter 5 says, by this time you ought to be teachers. And here you are still babies. It's not right. To stay a baby. The Lord is serious about us growing in maturity so that we produce fruit. And we ought to look at that fig tree and we ought to be saying, you know, man, he doesn't like it when you don't produce. Especially if you profess and don't produce. There's the tree. All right. So prayer is the key, I think, which draws these together. Notice, when our Lord Jesus cleanses the temple, he cleanses it by saying, this is a house of prayer. It is a house of prayer for all the nations. What you have done is to inhibit that for which the temple was created. That's why he cleanses it. Then in the cursing of the fig tree, he says, we need to have more instruction on prayer. And I'm telling you, the major barriers are unbelief, and unforgiveness. You ought to deal with that. So prayer is the link between the cursing of the fig tree and the cleaning and the cleansing of the temple. Here's some things to ponder. 
How does our way of doing church encourage or hinder prayer? This thing really got to my, my mind as I was thinking about this text. If the temple is a place that was designed to promote and facilitate prayer, which it was, then how are we doing as a church? I mean by that institutionally. How are we doing? You know, if, if we were building a church, if we were building a new church, I think we ought to be saying to ourselves, how does the architecture of that church facilitate or frustrate prayer? How does the arrangement of the seats in this, in this room, how does that facilitate or frustrate prayer? When you look at the bulletin, I've got one here somewhere with notes written all over it. When you look at the bulletin and you look at the schedule that we ask people to keep, how does that facilitate or frustrate prayer? When you look at the music, I should say, let me correct that. When you listen to, if you pull the earplugs out, if you listen to the music, is that music such that it promotes prayer or frustrates prayer? Now, I'm for flexibility uh, to some degree in music, but I got to tell you, there are some places I can't even think, let alone pray. Because of the music. You just have to say that. You know, it's interesting in, in our body that some people are troubled by the silence. Folks, if prayer is paramount, silence is golden. Is it not? Think about what God has given us in, in silence. We got stuff plugged in our ears. We got stuff we're looking at down here and whatever because we don't want one millisecond of dead space. And I simply say, where's the time for meditation? Where's the time for prayer? We ought to be thinking about that as a church. How do we facilitate prayer? Thought of another one. Plurality. One of the things that's beautiful about the gathering of the saints and the plurality is because people have different spiritual gifts, they see the same circumstance in different ways. So you see a particular dilemma in the church and the person with the gift of exhortation says, here's what we need to do. I'm praying for that. And the rest of us, if we're listening, are saying, never thought of that. I'm putting that on my prayer list too. The evangelist says, I hope somebody's getting saved out of this. Hey, put that on the list. And by the time you get done, what you realize is prayer has been enriched by the perspective of all of these gifts that see the needs and what God's provision has provided for those things. The meeting of the church. What a beautiful thing it is, I think, for us to have prayer as the climax and culmination of our worship. Is it not? We come here and we observe the Lord's Supper because it is our cleansing through the blood of Christ that we can approach Him boldly to ask for what we do. Our confidence is in Him, not in us. In his work, not our works. It encourages prayer. So the next question is, what about our individual prayer life? And I would simply say, maybe we need to think about unbelief. Maybe we need to think about that. Where am I unbelieving? Or put it this way. 
Let's suppose that we were to talk about what kind of mountains there might be that we should pray to move. How about the mountain of our neighborhood and the unsaved people in it? Are we really praying that God would change the culture of this city or our neighborhood because of our witness as Christians? It's a mountain, folks. It's a mountain. (laughs) Jesus says he moves mountains. So let's start praying mountain prayers. Well, you can think about that. I want to end by saying this is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Isn't it interesting that providentially God would bring us to a place that emphasizes prayer on a day that focuses its prayers on the persecuted church? And I would ask the question we ought to be thinking about, how can we do better? You know, we have one special meeting today that I wasn't there, and, and I can probably guarantee it wasn't exceedingly well attended. That's, that's fine. That's one place. What are we going to do about our brothers and sisters? And more than that, how are we going to answer Jesus about Hebrews 13.3? Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, and those ill-treated as though you too felt their torment. What are we doing? Or what are we going to do differently about that? What are we going to do because Hebrews says that when we gather together, we encourage one another to love and good deeds. What are we going to do to encourage and facilitate prayer in this body? Now, I'm hoping some of you creative folks really get this to heart. And there may be slideshows that we need to to do during critical times where we just put it up in front of us. Do you know I have a friend that that lives in China that is working at at sending missionaries into North Korea? You know that's the most persecuted church in all the world? Do you know that you would not want your children to read the descriptions of what happens to Christians there? (laughs) No, you wouldn't want to read it yourself. And maybe that's part of the problem. We would rather remain in ignorance than know how bad it is. And here's the point I'm trying to make. That's the real world, folks. We live in the bubble, not them. We live in the bubble. The real world is suffering for Jesus because that's what Jesus said. He didn't say, take up your cross and follow me, but there won't be one. There is one that we need to take up. The other thing is, sometimes we pray for the persecuted church as though it was sort of the orphan child in the church and, and, and that somehow it needs us. We need them. We need to listen to the persecuted church. We need to listen to what they're praying for us. Because I think their prayers are probably more on target than ours. You may not remember this, but when Colin McDougall came back from Africa, where he had been for years uh, founding a church that eventually sent missionaries, when he came back to the United States, to the Church of the Open Door, he came with a message from the elders of that primitive church. Do you remember what the message was? Okay, does out there. Do not fear persecution. That was their message to us. I'm simply saying to you, this text ought to get our attention. 
Prayer is important to Jesus. And it's important to us. And we ought to be thinking about what we can do individually and corporately to do better at it. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is our true temple. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who can take even a story of the cursing of a fig tree and turn it into uh, an example of how we should pray better. I would ask if there's anyone in the hearing of my voice who doesn't know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, who has not yet trusted in Him, that they would first of all acknowledge their sin and trust in the sacrifice He has made. And then I would ask for all of those who are believers that you would make us people who are much more characterized by prayer. In particular, we remember our brothers around the world. I'm thinking particularly of Korea, but it could be Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever, where the people in your body may well die this day for naming the name of Jesus. Help us to be faithful, to pray for them as though we were with them. In Jesus' name, amen.